Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 169. And today in the show, we're answering listener questions, and we're covering topics such as the timing of the rut, decoying whitetails, trail camera setups, mock scrapes, using grunt calls, recommended reading, and much, much more. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we have got a whole slew of different topics that we're going to be covering. Because over the next hour or two, we're going to be one of those episodes where we tackle listener questions. Um, I mentioned it before, but I get hundreds of emails and messages and tweets and Instagram DMs asking me this question or that question, and I unfortunately have a hard time staying up on them. So my hope with an episode like this today is that we can answer some of those questions and do it in a way, though, that doesn't just help one single person, but that can help a whole bunch of different people that might be curious about the same thing. So we've got questions we're going to be talking about today related to the timing of the rut and all sorts of stuff related to the rut, uh, things related to mock scrapes, uh, trail cameras, book recommendations, and all sorts of stuff in in between that, all over the place. So lots of good stuff. But before we get to all that, we've got a couple things. We have some interesting updates. Some interesting news, but that's going to wait for one more, a few more minutes, because in addition to Dan and I, we've got another member of the Wired Hunt team with us today. You've heard his silky smooth baritone voice each week during our <laughs> during our sickest stories and our whitetail property segments. This is our one and only producer, Mr. Spencer Newharth. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Hey, uh... Thanks for having me, but now I'm really nervous about what hazing might take place after <laughs> that kind of intro. You're, you're screwed, buddy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the only reason I'm here is to throw you under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> Just so we're clear. Oh. Right. oh man, that's awesome. But but Spencer, I, you know, I wanted you to join us today because this week, as you know, and as some people might already know, we have launched our first Rut Radio episode of 2017. And for some of you listening, maybe you've already seen this pop up in your podcast feed, or maybe you're familiar with Rut Radio from last year. Uh, But basically, this is a mini-series that we're running through Wired to Hunt during the season, 
and Spencer here is the one who's putting those shows together. So what do you think, Spencer? Can you give us a quick kind of overview of what Rut Radio is? If someone hasn't heard one of these mini, one of these episodes yet, what is it all about? What are we doing? Well, for starters, the episodes are short, uh, so you're not going to get exhausted listening to them like they do you two during regular <laughs> episodes. So. Touche. These only go, these only go like 30 minutes. Um, and within that 30 minutes, I will talk to like four or five contacts that spread throughout Whitetail Country. Um, this week, for example, we have people in uh, North Carolina all the way to North Dakota. And when I talk to them, I, I just kind of get a feel for what the local deer activity is doing. And, you know, this time of year, you'll hear a lot of things like, oh, what are are the deer in bachelor groups? Are they hitting the beans as they change colors? How do water sources play a role? Stuff like that. But, you know, once we get to October, it'll be stuff about mock scrapes and rubs, and then November, seeking and chasing. And so it's just kind of a seasonal thing. Um, and uh, it's very timely because these interviews were recorded yesterday. The podcast went up today. So the information that you're getting uh, is super up to date and we try to cover, um, you know, as much ground as we can with these so that everybody can hopefully find something that's useful for them. Uh, and just another piece of the puzzle for their deer hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard a, we got a lot of good feedback last year when we did this, um, because just like you said, there's something to be, there's something to be said about getting real time information about what's happening somewhere near you. So I think we did a pretty good job last year of covering a lot of different states and areas of the country. I know our plan this year is to be even more diverse with what we're covering. So like you said, I think everyone listening at some point is going to hear updates on areas that are nearby to them. And the additional change that we're making this year compared to last year, like you mentioned, um, is that we're covering the entire season. So last year we, we came up with the idea of, of calling this mini series rut radio because we were just going to try to cover you know the progress of rut related activity and how that was changing throughout you know late october and november but i got to thinking i mean there's there's value in hearing about deer behavior and activity and changing conditions and current tactics you know there's value to hearing that all season long because um, all three of us know that that changes throughout the entire year from september all the way through january so i'm pretty stoked that we're starting this now in september and that we're going to cover all the way through the end of the year. Um, so, so I don't know, Spencer, you said you mentioned North Dakota and North Carolina. Where else do we cover in this week's episode? Uh, we also go to Wisconsin and Missouri. Perfect. So we've got a little north, a little south, a little Midwest. Um, and, and I don't want to spoil it because this episode is out right now. Um, so you can look on your podcast app and you'll see it's episode 168, Rut Radio. Um, I think it's... You know, we title it Rut Radio 920 2017. So you'll see that episode out there. You can listen to it. Um, but can you give us like a like a super, super Cliff Notes version? If you had to kind of summarize or give a couple takeaways from what you've heard from these people this week, what's what's the pulse of the whitetail world right now? Well, I think with each episode when I talk to people, um, you know, I'm trying to get this information that'd be relevant for somebody who maybe hasn't hunted in a couple weeks and they have like a rut vacation coming up or, or whatever may have you. And like for this episode, I'm that guy uh, because our opener in South Dakota isn't until this weekend. And so a lot of the stuff I'm asking them is, is very, uh, I guess relevant to what you would think about in mid September. Are you hunting field edges, which is quite often the case right now? Um, are you hunting over beans? And, and again, yes, a, a lot of guys are doing that. It, it's just right now kind of a lot of vanilla setups. Um, 
weather plays a big factor right now as far as some areas are dry and some areas are wet. Um, and then just the acorn crop that's also coming. So those are kind of the main things that you'll hit on this week. Uh, like I said, it kind of changes as we get deeper into the season. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to following along and I appreciate you pulling these together and making all these phone calls and talking to these people all over the country. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if we want to open this up or not, maybe I'm opening up a can of worms, but if you're listening right now and you would be willing to offer, you know, your own reports, maybe, you know, feel free to shoot me a tweet or a message or something like that. And I can at least pass that along to Spencer. So maybe Spencer from the future, you really need to get a contact. You need an update from Vermont or Georgia. Maybe there'll be someone who reaches out and says, Hey, I'm from Vermont. I'll help. And I'll be able to pass that over your way. So uh, if you're interested, maybe shoot me a message. I'll send that to Spencer. Um, and who knows, maybe you can help share some information with the wired hunt nation in a future episode. But, uh, I'm curious, man, your openers this weekend, do you got a game plan in place? I do. And it's going to be something a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to Western South Dakota in what is kind of your typical mule deer country, but I'm going to be trying to hunt whitetails. And so in this kind of rolling plains, uh, that's this, little space between the Badlands and the Black Hills. That's that's pretty rough country. Um, I'm going to try to find just like some of your textbook uh, whitetail habitat that's river bottoms and, and cattle pastures and stuff like that. And I'm going to stay there for like four or five days and, and I'll be tenting it and uh, see what I can come up with. So That's awesome. I'm excited to uh, follow along with that. And, and we're going to be well, you are going to be, you're going to be sharing some of those updates of your hunt with, uh, with Wired to Hunt through the Instagram account too this weekend, which I'm excited about. Um, so people can check that out on the Wired to Hunt Instagram account that's at Wired to Hunt. Um, that should be pretty cool. So sounds like you did something pretty similar to what I was doing last week. Um, Dan, you and me, we got to talk a little bit about the beginning of the Montana hunt, but do you yeah. want to hear about how the Montana hunt ended or should we just say, meh, move on? Well, if anybody follows your social media feed, they already know kind of how it ended, but give a, give a recap of how it ended. And, and because you had some other plans that you decided to uh, forego as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Lots of, a little, a little bit, a few changes of plans. Um, so long story short, you know, I think when we talked last week, I was early in the Montana hunt. I was just checking out these first couple spots that did not end up working out very well. Um, you know, all these public pieces are getting grazed by cattle and sheep. And this is what I came to find out. So there just was no good cover and I couldn't intercept getting in between good cover and food. Um, so after you and me chatted, I went and I moved a stand to a new location and I did get into some deer. Um, and the trick to that one was I looked at my maps and I found a piece of BLM land that was completely landlocked. You couldn't access it anyway um, because it was surrounded by private land except for there was a river that runs through it. And that same river eventually passes by a piece of state land that I could access from the road. So what I found out, what I figured out to do is I would walk that state land all the way to the back, drop into the river, and then walk that riverbed all the way to this other piece of public that was tucked way back in this stuff. And in Montana, it's public access as long as you're below the high water mark in a riverway like that. So I was able to do that, get in there, and that wasn't getting hunted. That wasn't getting grazed. It didn't seem like. And so there was a lot of deer in there. And I was I was kind of intercepting at least some of the traffic that was heading towards that one food source. So I saw a lot of deer, saw dozens of deer, lots of bucks, um, just nothing that quite wanted 
to fill my tag with. Um, probably some three-year-olds, um, decent bucks, you know, 110s, 15s, 115s-ish, somewhere around there maybe. Some bucks that, like, you know, given how short a time frame I had, I grabbed my bow and was like, uh, thinking about it. But, you know, this year I just kind of wanted something a little different. I wanted something that, like, was, like, a no-brainer. And um, after four or five days in there, dicking around, trying some different places, you know, adjusting. Every day I, I pulled the stand and readjusted, pulled the stand and readjusted, trying to see, okay, maybe a better box on this side, or is there somewhere I can get eyes on something different? And uh, it just didn't happen. Um, it was fun, though. And I did see one shooter, but he was over on private land at last light, and um, there was no way I could get any closer to him. So, um I hunted, though, my full week there in Montana instead of, you know, I was hoping I could fill my tag in Montana in like three days and then bump over to North Dakota and have time to hunt there. But because I wasn't able to do it in Montana, um, what I decided was I'm going to postpone that North Dakota hunt and go back later in the season. So I just went home after Montana. I'd been I'd been away from home for, for about two months and hadn't seen my wife in almost three weeks. So it was time to get home. And, uh, and I'm going to try to get back out to North Dakota maybe now and later in October or November, just depending on things go. But uh, it was it was a cool experience. Got to see a lot of deer. It was fun to be in a tree stand. Um, just, uh, you know, just not quite the spot I needed this year. But that's what happens, I think, when you go to an area like that. Having I've never seen this area ever. You know, first time ever being there, I just looked at maps and then showed up and then tried to figure it out. And, you know, you know not bad. Do you think that, and I don't know if this was the case for, for where you were hunting in Montana, but I know to the south of you in Wyoming, they were having some drought conditions. Uh, did did you see any drought conditions in, where you were hunting? And if you add the fact that these lands are being grazed by livestock, do you think that played a role into maybe the, the deer being in a different location? You know, it was definitely super, super dry. Um, so yes, they were experiencing drought there. No doubt about it. It was just, it was just, uh, as dry as it could get. So yeah, that for sure. Um, now was that impacting though? Why the deer, there definitely were deer in the area I found, you know, the third day. Um, you know, the, the stuff that was all getting grazed. Yeah. I understand why there weren't deer there, but I finally was able to tuck into this one section that, that did have the deer because it was closer to the one good food source. There was one big alfalfa field that all these deer were piling into. And so I saw like 50, 60 deer out in that alfalfa field my first night scouting. So I knew there's deer in there. I saw one decent buck. I talked to a rancher there who said there was a really nice buck in the area he'd been seeing. So I knew, yes, there's, there's potentially a shooter in here. Um, the only issue is that I just had a 40 acre little square that was sort of near that cover, but I couldn't, you know, I wasn't able to get at like the skinny part of the funnel. If you imagine the alfalfa fields, like the bottom, let's say it's the middle of a pie and then there's cover. The whole top half of that pie is cover and the food is just the circle in the middle of the pie. There's deer coming from all different angles. There's deer coming from 12, 11, 10, 9, 1, 2, 3, if you're thinking on a clock. Um, where my little piece of public was, I could only really hunt the deer that were coming from like eight o'clock and nine o'clock, but anything in 10, 11, 12, one, two, three, or nine, um, sorry, not eight and nine. I was hunting more 10 and 11 o'clock, but whatever. 
what I'm trying to say is that most of that cover I just couldn't hunt. So there could have been deer, there could have been good bucks and that other stuff that I just simply couldn't couldn't intercept because of the positioning of that little tiny piece of public. So I just had to work with what I had, and um, it was it was kind of limited. And the four or five other places I thought I'd have to go check out and to hunt if this one didn't work out, those ended up being grazed to dirt. So that was just, uh, you know, the card, the hand that was dealt and um, didn't work out. Hey. You can't go out and kill giant caribou every hunt. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I can't complain. My, my first hunt of the year was pretty good. So, so yeah, man, now I'm just excited uh, about Michigan, which opens up in a little over a week in Ohio. And Iowa does for you too, right? October 1st. Yep. October 1st is Iowa opener. Will I be hunting? Absolutely not. Well, I got a check that's going to be in the mail very soon. <laughs> I have a check that's going to be in the mail very soon, so you might be hunting. You might be uh, hunting. We'll I just, just might. we'll just wait and see. But uh, I, I did mark down on my calendar October. Let me check real quick. I, I got it. I got it right here. I have a wedding. I have to take pictures for for photography, and then. I have a week break, and then I go to Minnesota on October 28th for a, a family wedding. So I have October 20th, 21st, where I, I've already gotten permission to hunt. So oh, good. Like a, a two weeks. So hopefully you still send that check. <laughs> <laughs> so you're wanting a third day of hunting in October. You're, you're asking a lot here, Dan. I know, I but, know. No, no, but I think that that right there is going to be probably the 20th. If I had to guess the 21st, I might be able to sneak out if I have some family members coming over to, uh, you know, check the baby, you know, see the baby for the first time. I'm like, Hey, I got to run to the store and get gas and then be gone for like five hours. Yeah. Yeah. I know how that goes. <laughs> Do you have any baby news? Is uh baby progress still? Cause it's just about the due date, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, do you want, do you want specific details? Uh, yeah, if you had anything gory, disgusting, uncomfortable, yeah, that's that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I, I do, I do. <laughs> you want to know? But I don't know. Like, <laughs> use, I tell yeah, you what, use your discretion. I need you, I need you to figure that stuff out on your own. Okay, <laughs> you you got stuff like that coming down the pipe. But yeah, all of the signs, all the changes that happen to a woman's body are starting to happen and they've been happening since this weekend now it's just a matter of time until junior decides to come out so yeah all right well good to know spencer when you hear dan talking about kids how does that make you feel being a newlywed man uh i've always been team no babies so. <laughs> oh buddy i'm still you know, there and, and even further so <laughs> your first mistake was getting married buddy <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, it helps that she doesn't want babies either. So okay. did she listen to this podcast? No, no, we can say whatever we want. <laughs> We're safe. This is, this, this is, is a safe, safe space. Safe space. That's right. <laughs> well, that's, that's good, Spencer. I, uh, it'll, it'll at least keep you hunting. I, uh, I don't know what to say yet. We'll see if, if Dan's experience is universal or if I'm going to have a different experience. I don't know yet, but we'll know here in a few months. So. One thing you should learn, though, is you like I am the wrong person to ask for advice when it comes to raising kids. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't supposed to agree with me. <laughs> what did you expect? Uh, deer, though. Deer. 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 Should we talk about deer? 
Let's talk about deer. I, I, I have I have news. Do you guys want some news? Oh, buddy. Is this what I think it is? I checked trail cameras in Michigan. I checked trail cameras in Michigan, and I pulled those SD cards, and I swapped out regular cameras for a cell camera. Actually, got I bought another cell camera, so I got two cell cameras out in this property, and I made sure my food plots were looking okay, and I came back to the house, and I got a beer, and I nervously kind of inserted the SD card in the computer, and I said a prayer, and I said, will, will Holyfield be back? Will Holyfield be back? That is the question I've been asking myself for months. Uh, Spencer, you do not know the answer to this question, so I'd like your guess. Do you think that he is back? At some point, yes. Right now, no. Okay. And Dan, what do you think? <laughs> uh, I think he's back, Mark. <laughs> Holyfield is alive. I got pictures, and I'm very, very excited about it. Year three begins. Um, it took me – I probably took like – an hour and a half of looking through trial camera pictures. Finally found some of them. He's not he's not on there very much, um, but I did get a handful of pictures that I, I guess I should caveat. I am 95% sure it's him. My wife claims she's 100% sure. A bunch of my friends claim they're 100% sure. I would like to see one more picture that's like a perfect, no-brainer, very clear um, picture that I can see his ear and everything. The pictures I've got are kind of blurry, and they're at nighttime. Um, but it's sure, I'm, I'm pretty darn sure it's him. So the big guy's back. He, he doesn't look very different from what he's looked like in the past. He's not put on much from an antler growth standpoint, maybe some more mass, a little bit wider, maybe a little bit longer main beams. Um, but pretty much the same tine length. He's, he's just a eight pointer, but he's got a big old pot belly. Didn't you, did you see that big old body on him, Dan, on the picture I sent you? Yeah, he's, de- he's definitely a mature buck. Yeah. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a big old slob. So, um, some I'm pretty stoked. It's gonna be another fun year. I've been I've been already glassing from the hilltop, trying to see if I can spot him. Haven't seen him yet, um, but hoping he'll be showing up here soon. He hasn't popped up on my cell cameras yet, but one of them isn't working for some reason. So that's annoying. But um, that's my latest. He's he's the only shooter that showed up on trail camera. He's the only mature buck I have on camera on this property that I checked. Um, bunch of dinks. One two-year-old that's got good potential. Another one that's maybe two, maybe three, kind of wide but short tine. He's got potential. Um, but none of the other bucks I've seen you know, from past years has shown back up. <clears throat> There's a deer I call Foreman who I saw a ton last year and who I know made it through at least through December. I think there's a chance he... He he hopefully is back at some point, but I haven't seen him. So that's that's the latest on my news uh, here in Michigan. But um, super pumped. I got a question. I got a question, not for you, but for Spencer. Now, Spencer, you you followed this Holyfield saga for a while, right? Yes. Right. Okay. Now, last year when Mark said, "Afia, I'm going to pass this buck. I'm, I'm I don't want to kill him anymore." Were you on? team dude you got to shoot that buck or were you on team uh yeah mark that's probably a good idea you should you should let a buck like that walk 
I was for killing him. And, <laughs> like, I, I could understand if he just had, like, one encounter where he's like, oh, no, I'm going to let him go. But, like, I mean, you encountered him over and over where you pass on killing him. That correct, right? Well, I only had two actual shots at him last year. One of them I passed because it was a little bit too dark. And then one of them I just didn't – that was after I decided I didn't want to shoot him. Um, so there's only but one like, point. Didn't in gun season you would have had opportunities at him yes, or not? Yes, in gun season right. in gun season was when I could have shot him, and I probably could have kept going in and getting shots at him because he showed up over and over and over in a spot I could easily hunt, and I just didn't. That's where I was like, just give in and kill him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I hear you. I was chatting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've heard it from – I've heard all different angles on this one. Some people – see where I was coming from. Some people think I'm an idiot. I've heard other people who say, there's, how could you kill him now? You sh- there, there's no way you should shoot him now after you've seen him so many times. So I don't know. But uh, but if if I'm like Julius Caesar in the, in the movie The Gladiator, you know, at this point, the thumb's going down. It's the end for Holyfield. If I can, if I can make it happen, there's no question no this what. year. No matter what. If I can ha- no matter what. If, yeah. There's, he there's, comes in with half his rack busted off. You're passing him. Now that that would be. Huh? Huh? Didn't think about that, did you, buddy? No, I didn't think about that. But that gets into all sorts of weird questions then for me because it's like because it's not all about the antlers for me. Like, of course, there's this whole experience and the but history. You, you just had like a question there. It changes everything, even though it's not about the rack for you. You're you, right there. You're just like, well, that kind of changes some things. I know. That's what I'm saying to myself is like, I'm, I, I don't even know how to answer that in my own head. And I realize I'm like being hypocritical or something because you're right. Like I, I, I would, I would say that it's not all about the antlers, but, mm-hmm. but you're right. I paused there and I was like, huh, I don't know. Spencer, your thought. Uh, what I'm I'm wondering the same thing. Like, if there are any deer uh, that would take priority, you know, over Holyfield, say a buck you haven't seen since like 2014 or 2015 came in, uh, you know, just blew you away. I think you would change your mind then, right? Ah, uh, well, if he has the broken rack, or if we're just saying he's fully normal, great health, and then this new buck shows up, which one of those situations? Either- yeah, like like he has his whole rack. Are there any deer you think that could change your mind on him? I don't think so. I think that I think that what would happen is if let's say a random new buck showed up that's like a giant, a giant buck, like, like it'd be from Iowa. Yeah, or something. like if Dan <laughs> if Dan let one of his Iowa bucks come on over to Michigan and it showed up on my property, and like it'd be like the biggest buck I've ever seen in Michigan. I'm shooting that buck, but I will then break my typical rule. My typical rule on this property where this is all happening specifically is that I would only take one buck off that a year because there's just not a lot of mature bucks out there. But if for some reason it's like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that, okay, yeah, I would never get another chance to buck like this, yes, I will probably shoot that buck, but then I will continue to hunt Holyfield after that. Um, Holyfield is on a – he's on the list this year, no questions asked. I would be – I would have weird feelings if – he showed up with like missing his rack or half his rack because like, I don't know. I don't know how to articulate that or how to make sense of that. even in my own mind, why that would matter. But it would feel like if I'm going to kill Holyfield, it should be like the right, it should be like the right way. It should be the whole thing. It should be, um, 
it's not even like he's got that big of a rack. So it's not like I'm doing this because I want like some amazing trophy that I'm going to measure and put in the record book or something like that. His rack is not going to excite many people. Um, but it's still representative maybe of like this really cool animal that I've been able to observe and interact with. And like it would, I don't, I don't know. I would have to like chew on that for a while. I don't that know. was a bit of gotcha journalism by Dan and I there. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really was. You guys stumped me. Um, I hope I don't need to. Now I'll, I'll tell you if he like breaks off part of his main beam, like he did last year. Um, see, that's so weird to me. Like, even as I'm saying these things, for some reason in my head, like if he busts off a tine or part of his main beam or something, if he still looks like Holyfield to me, I think I shoot him. If like it's not the Holyfield that's in my head, if like he busts off a whole side or something, then I don't know. For some reason that changes it in my mind. I can't explain why. Um, but I'm not saying I wouldn't shoot him, but I'm saying it makes me think about it. Um, I have no good answer at this point. Hopefully, I don't need to deal with that. Hopefully, he's just a big old slob of a of a mature buck, and he shows up opening night or second night or third night or whatever it is when I go out there, and he just decides, you know what? I've lived a good long life. I'm sick of this guy stalking me and looking at me all the time. I'm just gonna let it end, and uh, we just wrap this sucker up real nice and tidy. So that's that's the game plan. Okay. On to the next one. On the next one, probably won't happen. But uh, but next week's episode, we can talk in more depth about my plan. Um, but we we've kind of we've kind of talked about this random stuff quite a bit here. Dan, did you have any up? I know you mentioned you've got a couple bucks maybe that are back that we've heard about in the past. Is that true? Yeah, man. Um, there are for sure uh, one buck I called Dork. Right, he is probably a seven or eight year old buck this year. Jeez. He is a, he is a Holyfield type of buck where the rack has never been gigantic, but his body is freaking huge. Like he's that buck that looks like he could push 300 pounds on the hoof. Um, wow. he's, uh, just a stud. I've got nothing but in the past, let's see, I got four years worth of trail camera pictures of this buck. Um, other than adding mass, this buck has really done nothing in the last year. He had a way bigger rack than he did this year, but, um, just a, a nocturnal buck. I have a strong feeling that he lives to the North of the farm that I have permission to hunt. And he only comes through uh, a handful of times a year. I just so happen to have a trail camera that is where he comes through uh, all nocturnal picks other than one daylight, like September, some September date, uh, late September, he, he comes through and it was a daylight pick on the tail end of a cold front. Um, I have, you, so uh, wait, I, I want to make sure I didn't miss this. Um, you haven't seen him in person though, right? I've never seen this buck. I, I, I might have, I might have seen him on the hoof, but it was really dark. It was not last year, but the year before, uh, a couple does came just barreling through the timber and there was a big buck chasing him, but he was further away, uh, behind like a pine thicket. I could see a big body in a rack. It looked like the characteristics, but by the time I got my binoculars up, it was just kind of like a, and then it was over gotcha. type of deal. Gotcha. So I never could ver I never could verify it. Um, 
the last time I went and checked trail cameras, uh, you know, this Gordon Bombay buck, right? Big old I, wide sucker. Yeah, big the big boy, right? Wide, probably 25-plus inside. Man, he's wider than that. I'd say even closer to 27 inches inside, which is sounds ridiculous. It but is you ridiculous. Saw the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so – I'll, I'll keep this short, this story very short. Um, I was out checking trail cameras and, uh, and I, I checked the weather and it was just like this quick rainstorm. And I, I thought that's what it was, but then, I mean, lightning started crashing, hitting the ground all around me, <laughs> heavy, heavy rain. I, I jumped down and, and I was soaking wet. I jumped down in this creek and I was like, I got to get back to my truck as soon as possible because I was literally scared. So I ended up cutting through a piece of property. Uh, I got caught on trail camera by because I, I took a shortcut through a piece of property on a two track. There was a trail camera on this two track. So I went to the landowner's house that I took a shortcut through, knocked on his door. I said, hey, man, I just had to get out of this storm. Lightning was cracking all around me. Um I, I walked through your property and I got caught on one of your trail cameras and he's like, Hey man, no big deal. Thanks for coming forward and telling me. Well, while I was there, I asked him, Hey, you, uh, you got any trail camera pictures this year of the big wide buck? Um, and he's like, not this year, but I hit him in the shoulder last year uh, and never recovered him. No. So yep. Last year, Gordon Bombay got hit, but not, not recovered. And the trail camera that I had soaking literally for three months without touching, no pictures of Gordon Bombay. So, um, who knows? He could still be alive. He could be a pile of bones. I, I hope not. I hope he shows back up late October like he always does um, in, in that area. Or that could have spooked him and he just jumped to a different property altogether. Man, that's a bummer. Yeah. Wow. Other than that, I got a, I got a couple other four year olds uh, that are back, uh, and uh, one or two, five and one five and one six year old that are back. Again, these these deer tend to shift this time of year. Um, I don't know if they're going to shift this year because of the acorn crop that could keep them around. But once the crops come out, there's a huge transition in this property. So it's just a matter of time. The next time I go and check trail cameras, we'll see who stuck around. It's exciting to see. I, uh, I, I, <laughs> whenever you, you, you talk through this kind of stuff though, I just like silently curse you. Cause you're like, oh, I got a couple four year olds, got a five year old, got a six year old. <laughs> I'm like, man, I've got one, I think five year old that I got pictures of twice. And that's all I had the entire summer. <laughs> right. I talk this, but remember again, we're talking about trail cameras. True story. Right. Trail cameras. You know, I could give a guy who knows nothing about how to hunt deer, a trail camera, put, say, Hey, go put it somewhere. He puts it out. And in Iowa, you, there's a chance you get a picture of a giant buck, True but story. hunting that animal is a completely different story. And you know, you also know my circumstances. I don't hunt a private farm. I hunt, I hunt, I mean, I hunt a private farm, but I have other hunters that hunt it with me. Um, so there's pressure there. Um, and then we all know that the properties to the North and uh, to the South and to the Northwest are all highly managed properties where once the crops come out on my farm, guess where they go to a place where the crops don't come out ever. So, well, I think you're still going to get it done. Yeah. That's my goal anyway. I think so. All right. Well, 
Next week. Enough of the crap. Yeah, next week let's talk a little more about our early season plan, or maybe what we can talk about your October 20th and 21st plan. I'll talk about my early season plan. Um, but we got some questions to answer. So, Spencer, are you cool hanging around and helping us answer some of these questions? I can do that. And uh, here's another reason to listen to Rut Radio. In the time you've heard us three talk about nothing, you could have listened <laughs> to the entire podcast this week. <laughs> Rut Radio. The consummate marketer. That's very good, Spencer. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'll keep selling. That's good. That's very good. You're spot on. Much more value in the Rut Radio episode than what you just heard here. <laughs> okay. First, let's get to something that's helpful. First question. But but actually, before that first question, let's take a second to thank our partners at Sitka Gear and take a listen to today's Sitka story, which our pal Spencer has got for you next. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Hauntera founder Ben Harshine, who tells us about a New Year's Eve hunt where everything came together as planned. So from Thanksgiving on to Christmas, uh, I'm very, very busy with my business, and I don't get much time to hunt. Uh, so what I did is I kind of reset cameras um, after uh, after Thanksgiving and, and really let them soak for a while. And I ended up patterning a buck uh, that came onto the farm late. And I thought maybe he was just a transient scooting through in late November, uh, early December. But w- what ended up happening is he, uh, he became really comfortable uh, visiting one of my central plots uh, on the farm that I hunt. And uh, what I did is I came back after Christmas time and, and kind of regrouped and checked all of my cameras. And uh, I was able to, to really establish a pretty consistent pattern with this buck on a, on a, on a west wind and, and anything that had a north to it as well. Um, so the, the, the plan was actually pretty simple, just kind of wait. And it, that, that wind happened to be on uh, New Year's Eve is when I slipped in on him. And uh, it, it, was, it was a pretty cold night, but thankfully what I was wearing, I was really comfortable. And I uh, just waited him out, and he ended up actually coming out really early. I mean, he was coming out probably a, an hour before dark. That's how comfortable he was, and uh, was able to put him down uh, pretty pretty quick there with the muzzle loader. So, uh, first buck in Iowa as an Iowa resident is definitely a uh, awesome hunt, awesome experience. Meant a ton to me to, to be able to get my first deer here in, in Iowa in my new uh, home state. On Ben's hunt, he was wearing Sika's fanatic system. If you'd like to create a Sika story of your own. Or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. Okay, first, let's get to something that's helpful. First question is from Josh D. And I'm just going to do like the first letter of the last name. Just in case, like Josh is embarrassed that he's asking this question. He thought he was asking it privately, and now his buddies are like, oh my gosh, Josh, you didn't know about decoys? Um, So Josh D. asks, what are your thoughts on decoys? Buck or doe? Or combo buck and doe? What situation do you use them in? How do you orient them to your hunting location? Is morning or evening better? Or both? So we got a bunch of little questions related to decoying there. Um, I've got some thoughts on this. I had my first decoy success last year. So I can talk touch on that. But Spencer or Dan, do either one of you guys have an opinion on this topic? I'm going to defer as I very rarely ever use decoys just because of the locations that I hunt Spencer. Yeah. I'm this, I'm the same way. I rarely feel like I have the opportunity to use a decoy because that time of year when a, a decoy would be relevant, um, I'm hunting a little bit thicker stuff where, uh, 
you can get by with the illusion of a grunt or a rattle, you know, and you don't need to have something that's, you know, visibly there. So no, I, I don't do much decoying. Okay. So, so I don't do much decoying either. Um, but I just use it occasionally in certain circumstances. So the circumstances when I would use a decoy would be if I'm hunting in an area during the rut, like peak rutting activity. So that would be like, you know, the week or two before peak breeding, maybe in a lot of places that's going to be the first week of November or the second week of November, maybe when there's a lot of bucks cruising around. Um, so if it's during that time frame, and if I'm for some reason not able to hunt in tight cover, like if I've been hunting in near a bedding area, I've been hunting in a funnel a bunch, and it's just not working out, if for some reason I need to hunt in a more open location and I need to have something that might bring them in a little closer, that's when I would use a decoy. Um, so the situation where I used a decoy last year in this Ohio property that I hunt, uh, just over 50% of it is wide open field. And even the stuff that's cover, you're still close to an edge no matter where you go because it's just two tiny little fingers of cover that come out into this big field. So in general, you're hunting in relatively open areas. Um, but we'd hunted some of the cover the first few days, three, four, five days of my rut hunt down there, and it just wasn't happening. So it was like day five or six, I can't remember exactly, and I was like, screw it, this stuff hasn't been working, I need to try a different area, I need to see what's going on on this far other side of the property. The issue is at the far other side of the property, we have almost no cover at all. It's basically just a fence row, and then one little like nugget, like a little lima bean of cover that pops out. So I had, we have a stand in that little lima bean, and I thought, well, I can sit here, I can at least see some new country. I'm going to bring the decoy just in case I see something, maybe I can call it in, and that will be what brings it in that final distance. So that's the kind of scenario when I would use one. Now, as far as how I would set it up, the setup that I've learned that I took from a lot of guys that do this much more often than me, guys like John Dudley, he was one of the guys that was um, that offered the most helpful advice to me, was that you want to set that buck. I use a buck decoy, a single buck decoy. I had take one of the antlers off, and the theory being there is that it's not intimidating if it's just a half rack. It's enough that a buck will come in and want to kick its butt, uh, but not so much of a challenge that it's going to scare away a buck. And then I want that buck, I want to be in a situation where the wind is blowing from the decoy to me. Because if a buck sees the decoy and is going to come in, the first thing he's going to want to do is he's going to want to get downwind of it. He wants to smell it, and then he wants to approach that buck head-on and challenge it. So what we do is you put that buck in between you and the wind. So the wind's blowing, hits the decoy, hits towards you. So a buck that's going to circle downwind of that has to come in between you and the decoy. And then I set that buck angling, kind of quartering towards me, not pointed right at me, not like he's looking right at me, but he's kind of looking off to my right or off to my left. And then what's going to happen in the scenario that would you know, typically play out is if a buck hears you, or, you know, grunting or rattling or something, or just spots the decoy, he comes in and he approaches towards the front of the decoy and circles downwind of him, giving you a perfect broadside or broadside or quartering away shot. And he's never going to be, you know, looking at you so you can draw your bow or whatever you're doing. If you're hunting with a gun, you can get settled um, when he's looking at that buck head on. So that's the situation. That's the setup. As far as the time, um, I think evenings, I think any time of day could work as far as like when it would be useful. The tricky thing is that if you're going in the morning, um, if you're hunting with a decoy, most often that means you're hunting uh, a wide open area. And it's difficult to get into a wide open field type setup in many cases if it's a food source during the morning because there's probably going to be deer feeding out there. So 
I would say, you know, if, if you can get in there without spooking deer, sure, do it in the morning. If like, you know, there aren't going to be deer there because maybe it's like a, a short grassy field or something that they don't come through, then yeah, I think that could work fine in the morning. Um, but at least in my experience, setting up these decoys is kind of clunky. The one I have is kind of loud because it's like hollow plastic. So I usually just use in the evening because I can get in there, but deer most likely aren't going to be moving. I can get it set up without worrying about spooking deer. And then that last hour or two, hopefully when there's going to be more activity, then it's there, it's set up, and I'm able to, you know, hopefully have a good hunt. So in my case last year, I did all those things, and then like an hour before daylight, I saw a buck following a doe across this wide open field, maybe a couple hundred yards away, and I grunted at him several times, gave him a snort wheeze. That was enough to get his attention. He looked towards that sound, and he saw this little one-antlered buck. And man, just like in the movies, that guy, <laughs> that guy puffed up, pinned back his ears, and he came in 200 yards on a string right to it. It was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So, um, you know, it, it's really cool in a situation like that. Um, but I'll preface with one other thing. I would only use a decoy in a situation like this where you've got relatively low hunting pressure. Um, and where you've got a lot of mature bucks because in a situation like in Michigan where there's tons of other hunters and there's not a lot of mature bucks, I think you're more likely to spook deer and you're also going to be spooking a lot of does because lots of times when you've got a bunch of does coming out into a field or wherever and they see this decoy, that's going to make them feel uncomfortable. So another thing I should have mentioned is that it might not be the best idea to use this in an area where there's going to be lots of deer coming up close to that decoy because those does start getting concerned, they start blowing. Then you've got a situation where any deer coming into the area is getting spooked by the decoy before you even get a chance for a mature buck to see it. So an ideal situation is like a low deer density area where these deer are going to be passing in the open a long ways away and you just call to that mature buck when you see him and then he travels towards you and you can use the decoy that way. That's, that's kind of an ideal setup. So I don't use a decoy in Michigan. I've used them in Ohio and Iowa, though, you know, when I've got that different set of circumstances. So that's my two cents on decoys. Does that, that all make sense to you guys? It did. Cool. Sounded, sounded great. <laughs> all right. Question, <laughs> question number two comes from John Z. John Z says, listening to your trips out west has inspired me to hunt new areas of public land. I'm planning a backpack whitetail rut hunt, and I had a few questions for you. Number one, how do you keep your weight down for packing in when you're carrying in a stand and sticks and a tent and camping gear? Um, and then he asked if I've got a standard gear list for a three-night trip. Um, and he just says he's not a backpacker, so this is all kind of new to me. doesn't want to leave out any essentials, but I also don't want to pack anything unnecessary. Um so, Dan, you do a lot of packing in with your stand and sticks. I don't know if you want to give me a few thoughts on how do you keep your weight down from that standpoint. Um, but uh, but then we can also talk about the, the, the camping gear side of things too. But from a, well, I don't know, I mean, high level. Do you have any thoughts on that, Dan? Yeah, I mean, and, and I will. I'll stick to the, the gear for the actual hunt, not the camping type of stuff. But for me, I mean, you, you hear a lot of people talk um, – I, I follow um, a YouTube guy. Uh, he has a podcast now, but the the DIY sportsman, right? He talks all the time about how to, you know, lighten your gear load and um, make it easier for you on on these public land run and gun hunts. And but for me, like even walking in a mile with a very heavy pack 
is I'm okay with that. Uh, I'm if because I have the right gear. So like I have a lone wolf tree stand and four lone wolf sticks. And then if it's cold out, I have overalls and typically a grunt tube and um, uh, my my rattling antlers. Right. So clothes stand and then the the stuff that goes along with that. Now, I'm not too, too concerned with weight. If you are concerned with weight, th- there's a ton of different options to to reduce your weight as far as gear um you know i wouldn't sacrifice on the tree stand uh part of it only because um you know certain tree stands are really good for running gun setups like i always say this and mark i know you you use them too not all the time but the lone wolf man it's just like it's lightweight it's one of the best stands for a running gun type hunt it's very light but they also make these tree saddles and i don't know if any of you guys have um any experience with those i know i don't personally but it's basically a lineman's belt that uh, an arborist would use and you basically sit down in this sling for the entire hunt and you stand either on your top step or on a very small platform uh there's there's a variety of uh, options like that uh you can make alterations to your sticks where you can um put some some rope to extend the stick so you're taking less sticks with you but you're still able to gain the height of let's say like four sticks or screw in steps um options like that for me I don't film my hunts, so I am no longer taking in a camera arm. I'm no longer taking in a video camera. Uh, maybe again, maybe someday that will change. But as of right now, that's like ten extra pounds of gear that I'm not having to take in uh, because I don't I don't film my hunts anymore. Um, you know, although I am a huge believer in Ozonics, so I'm taking that piece of equipment with me instead. Uh, I mean, it just it just is a matter of how far you're going to be going uh for me an additional 10 pounds for having the right gear uh or bringing in some something that makes me more makes setting up and tearing down more comfortable i'm okay with adding an additional 10 10 15 pounds okay yeah i mean i 100 percent agree when it comes to bringing make if you're gonna do a hang and hunt type stand or type situation like this I do highly recommend a high quality lightweight stand. Like I buy super cheap crappy stands for like all of my spots that I'm just setting up in the spring or summer and leaving up, you know, for the year. Like I buy the $40 stands. I'm that guy that only spends 40 bucks on a stand for those. But when it comes to my hanging, my hanging hunt setups, yeah, I'm spending like 200, 300 bucks for a stand, 200 bucks for sticks or whatever it might be. So yeah, I've, I've liked the Lone Wolf Assault. Um, I've used a Muddy Outfitter that I've liked. Um, I've got a, a new stand I'm going to try this year, the Hawk Helium, um, that I'm going to give a try as, you know, kind of adding that into the mix. So yeah, it's good to have a lightweight stand. A lightweight stand, I think in my book, most of them like 12 pounds, 11 pounds, something around there or less is pretty darn light for a stand. That's what the Lone Wolf Assault comes in at. Um, I know the XOP stands are similar. Um, you can yep. get their small one that's right around 11 pounds. Um, I can't remember what this helium weighs, but I think it's somewhere around that. Um, there's a Millennium stand that's super lightweight that I remember seeing at ATA. So so look into some kind of option like that, I'd recommend. Because if you're backpacking in with not only all of your hunting gear, but then also gear to sleep with, um, that is going to be a heavy pack. I thought about doing a backpack whitetail hunt. Um, I was actually thinking about it for like next year maybe, like going out west. Backing, backpacking in and doing this kind of thing. I mean, that would be a really cool hunt. 
but it would be a man a lot of crap to take in there because then imagine if you shoot a buck then you gotta yeah. you gotta pack the buck out just like you know an elk or something and then you gotta go back in and get all your other gear you know it's just like a elk hunt or a mule deer hunt except for you're adding all your tree stand type setup stuff with it too so yep um Absolutely. spencer you have any thoughts on that yeah i guess like if you're doing a backpack trip hunt like that obviously the the three most crucial things to to kill a deer is your bow arrow and release and like the easiest of those to break or lose is your release so just have an extra one with you like i, I found that i'll even forget it just on my hunts around here um and I mean, it can just ruin a night because there's nothing you can do about it. So I just have like a $25 release I keep in my backpack all the time. Um, and that could save a guy a real headache if you were going to backpack in somewhere for like four or five days and, and that breaks down on you. That's that good, would suck. Good point. <laughs> That's <laughs> that a very suck. good point. Uh, and I was actually going to say, you know. My my next piece of advice was going to be don't bring anything that's not 100% absolutely necessary, but you're right. There's a few pieces that are like easily – that could easily break um, that might not be worth having a backup. Um, sometimes like I do a lot of backpacking. I do a lot of stuff like this, and I'm always a minimalist in that I try to take as little as I possibly can because – if you start taking everything where you're like, oh, I might need it, oh, that'd be nice to have. If you do that, if you make that decision for like five or six or seven different things to start adding up, all of a sudden you've got pounds and pounds and pounds of extra weight, and it does make a big difference. Um, but like last summer, we're going on a backpacking trip, and usually I just bring one layer, one set of clothes. My wife and I, you know, it's just you wear what you're walking with. You don't bring anything else. You, you bring additional layers for colder weather, but that's it. So she brought only one pair of pants. And we go hiking way up into this big, alpine basin in wyoming and we cross a river a creek type deal stream i guess kind of it's in between and my wife fell off of a rock crashed into the stream and got completely soaked and it was almost dark and there was snow everywhere it was really cold up there and it was gonna be like a freezing cold night and she had just soaked her entire lower half um and she didn't have any extra clothes at all so if she didn't have anything extra she would have had a really miserable rest of the night but luckily one of our friends was with us, and she was more new to backpacking, and she ignored my advice to only bring one set of clothes, and she had brought extras. And in that case, we were very glad she brought extras because now my wife had a dry pair of clothes to wear that night instead of freezing, soaking wet in her sleeping bag that night. So sometimes it does pay to have some extra stuff. I would still recommend in general try to be as minimalist as possible when doing something like this. Um, you know, when it comes to backpacking gear, stuff can be expensive, but paying to get lower weight stuff, you know, lighter weight things, it does in the end pay off if you're going to do enough of this kind of stuff. So if you're going in one time, it doesn't make sense to spend thousands of dollars on new backpacking gear. Maybe try to rent something. You know, a lot of sporting goods stores rent some of this stuff or borrow something from friends. But if you're going to be doing backpacking trips like this often every year, I'm a big believer now that I've been doing it for so long to, you know, suck it up if you can save a little money or invest in nice things over time. So this year, know you're going to have a heavy tent, but you're going to have a nice lightweight sleeping bag or something like that and slowly make your way till you can afford to have some of these things. But a good quality lightweight sleeping bag, a good quality lightweight tent, a good quality lightweight uh, sleeping pad, a few things like that are worth spending money on in my opinion. 
it's going to make it a lot more enjoyable because if you're living out there, those things really make the difference, um, especially when you get gnarly weather. I mean, Dan, you know what happens when you don't have a high-quality tent in gnarly weather <laughs> on a backpacking hunt, right? You get to know one of your best friends really well. Really well. <laughs> hey, Mark, can I sleep in here with you tonight? <laughs> yeah. Um, so so that would be my recommendation. I, I, um, I could run through a whole list of different gear. Um, that would take too much time. So maybe I'll try to follow up on this with, with a little bit more. But I actually do have a blog post that I wrote up for Wired to Hunt this past spring, I think, which listed all the gear I use for a DIY out-of-state whitetail hunt, like a camping hunt. And I listed some of the things um, that you could use for a backpacking hunt. So you want like a good lightweight backpacking stove. Like I use the MSR Pocket Rocket. I use a REI Half Dome uh, Plus tent. That's a pretty decent relatively affordable backpacking tent i use i got a new sleeping bag this year that i love it's a marmot never summer got my first down sleeping bag and man worth the money it's like luxuriously nice i use a thermarest neo light neo air x light uh, sleeping pad again super lightweight super small um it took me time to get these nicer pieces but something to think about and if you've got more gear questions feel free to shoot me a note i will try to answer those more specifically but uh, don't want to don't want to dwell too much on all that. But man, I think it's a cool idea. I think John's in for a super fun hunt. Um, I would definitely like to do something like that in the future. Do you guys want the next question? Paula. Paula has a question. Paula N is a f- avid female hunter, and she watched one of uh, the Hundred Percent Wild podcasts that I do with uh, Matt Drury and Terry Drury. We were talking about making mock, mock scrapes, and she says she's anxious to try using mock scrapes and see what it brings in. But one thing that we didn't touch on is if we use any attractants in our mock scrapes, and if so, how many should you use, um, and how many scrapes should I actually make in a certain area, in a large or a small area? Do either of you guys use mock scrapes? I think you do a little bit, Dan, right? Yeah, man. I just, I'm, I'm kind of fading out of all that stuff, I feel. Um, Mock scrapes, I think, might be good if you do it right for trail ca- getting maybe something in front of a trail camera. But there's a lot of risk to doing that, especially if the way I look at it is a lot of these people are a lot of the people who are using mock scrapes. Let's say you're going in to hunt that day. Then you're walk. Let's say you're going to hunt over a scrape. So you're walking over there to freshen it up right before or hanging something off a licking branch or sprinkling something in the scrape itself, you're running the risk of contaminating that area with your scent, right? So it's, it's, it's like a, it's risk. It's a, it's a risk that I don't know if it's, it's worth it for me anyway. Um, I've done it in the past. I've had a lot of, you know, your three-year-old and youngers come through and, and, investigate but i'll be honest i've never had a mature buck a big mature buck investigate a a mock scrape that i've made let's say that day um come investigate right in front of my tree stand i've got him on trail camera doing it but it nothing that's ever helped me seal the deal um towards the you know for actually getting the shot most of it you know, comes down to tree stand position and whether or not you're in the right location. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to agree with you on a lot of that. 
Um, I, I really only look at mock scrapes for two reasons. One, I use them to get trail camera inventory. So, you know, we've talked about this before, but like on my on the properties that I can plant food plots. So I've got now two properties in Michigan where I have food plots. I've got a southern Michigan property I have permission on, and then I have a northern Michigan property that's been in my family. And both of those now we've been able to plant plots. In those situations, I either create a mock scrape on a tree that's along the edge of it, or so I've done that on the northern Michigan properties. And on the southern Michigan property, I put a fake scrape tree actually out in the middle of the plot because those are bigger plots. And I'm using that to A, help me get pictures of bucks that are coming into that food plot. I'm giving them a piece of structure to come to, which very often they do. And that allows me to more consistently get pictures of the deer that come through there. But then also, it does give me a little bit, maybe a couple percentage points more of a chance that that buck might come to within shooting range when he enters that food plot and or that he stops for a shot. So I put those in all my food plots. Um, And then the only other situation where I'm using a mock scrape would be, I do this sometimes, not all the time, but I'm never going in there often like resetting it up or anything like that. The only other situation is I, I have mock scrapes over trail camera locations, different places scattered throughout a property. And then sometimes with tree stand sites, I will clear out a mock scrape like right when I, if I'm setting that stand up maybe um, before the season even. Lots of times those will get, continue to get used even if you set it up in August or September or something like that. Um, and just as like a little sweetener. So there's a reason maybe for a buck to stop for a few seconds as he's already passing through. And that'll give me the shot. So it's not like I'm using that to draw in a deer from some far off location and like that's why I'm hunting here. I'm hunting in a specific location for many different reasons that mock scrape there is just hopefully maybe a little thing that makes him stop for a second or that makes him come three yards closer giving me a better shot um that's how i'm using it as far as sense um that was kind of her main question do i use any attractants i don't use a bunch of attractants and mock scrapes i've tried you know back in the day i tried you know the doanestra stuff i tried the drippers um this year all i've used and i've only done this for my trail camera setups on a couple spots i've tried preorbital gland scent so this is the scent that comes from the preorbital gland that's the gland up around the eye forehead on a buck on a deer um and they tend to rub this this uh this stuff gets on the licking branch of a scrape when a when a deer's in there you know nosing around licking around up on those scrape those licking branches um so i've heard a lot of a lot of people talk about how you put this preorbital gland scent on a licking branch, a lot of bucks in the area will come in and check it out. Um, they'll be more likely to come in and check it out. So far, I have not seen any kind of like incredible difference in the trail camera pictures I'm getting on those mock scrapes using the scent. Um, so at this point, I'm not a huge believer, but that's just anecdotal and it's only been one set of experiences so far. So I'm going to continue trying to use it in these couple setups throughout the rest of the year. When I go to those trail camera locations, I'll add a little more scent just in case because I'm only going there in very specific cases. I'm not going in very often. But when I do, I will dab a little more in there and see what happens. Um, but up to, you know, otherwise I just take a piss in it. I take a pee in the scrape, and that's been enough for me. Research has proven that doesn't spook deer. After a little bit, it smells no different than, you know, a deer urine in there. So that's my take on it. Spencer, anything else you'd add? Uh, I agree with you guys on that. It's like a really good way to get, you know, buck inventory. But as far as hunting, there's just not a ton of value there. Um, but trail cameras, I, I love hanging trail cameras on mock scrapes. You go over a rub or something and you're going to get really blurry pictures. And that's like 
very seasonal, whereas like scrapes, you know, pretty much the whole month of October and put it on food, you're going to get, you know, varmints and does and stuff like that. Um, so that's why I think scrapes are great for trail cameras. But like I said, not a ton of haunting value. Yeah. Well, let's re- let's take for a, a second and talk about like statistics and remember that where are you going to find a majority of scrapes? They're going to be on a field edge setting. When do big bucks come and visit field edge type settings? Typically after dark. So it's not going to help you any to use some kind of scent in a scrape if where you're actually hunting isn't a scenario that a big buck is going to come visit um, in that in, in shooting hours, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of those big field edge type situations for sure. That's just, you're going to see those scrapes, mock scrapes or real scrapes and people get all excited about them. But yeah, lots of times if it's in the wide open, 95% of the time that's getting hit after dark. So, and, and big bucks aren't using scrapes the entire rut. They break off. They're not scraping when they're tending a doe. So true. So again, that time frame during the rut when most people are hunting is it's almost like, yeah, it's good early season and and hopefully maybe there's a buck visiting a scrape, but in the rut, you know, the let's say the rut's two weeks long or three weeks long, uh, they're breeding does in that and so they're not hitting that scrape every day they might uh while they're looking for does but when when they hit that so that's just more time that a buck's not using a scrape yeah yeah i think i think that the the research i've seen has shown that scraping behavior kind of slowly starts ramping up through october and it peaks around that last week of october like the 23rd through the 27th somewhere around there tends to be the peak of actual visiting scrapes purposely and and working them for bucks um, and then it tends to tail off after that, like you said, during the rut. I think the one situation, and it's the one we've been talking about, is like if a buck is already coming through an area already because he's looking for does or whatever it might be, and he happens to be walking near a licking branch in a scrape, many times he'll 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 move four yards closer to de- to get a quick whiff of that and smell it, or he'll circle downwind of it to get a whiff of it, um, because that's kind of a you know it's a it's a community like signpost of ways. There's lots of deer that do pass through there, leaving their scent, leaving some kind of message. So I think it can be valuable to have a mock scrape near your setup that maybe you just, maybe you made sure there's a licking branch available in the summer when you set up the tree stand and you just said, okay, you know, maybe deer will start making a scrape here. And then lo and behold, if that ends up happening and you sort of created this mock scrape setup that deer start touching on and you've got a buck that comes through the little pinch point that you're sitting and you happen to have that licking branch there, and that's where he stops for two seconds, puts his head up to take a whiff, whack, there's your shot. So um, it's it can be a nice little sweetener sometimes, but you make a great point about the fact that you I don't think in most cases you should be centering your whole hunt around something like that. Um, the one situation where some guys like to do this is you hear like a John Eberhardt type and, and some people like that who, who focus on what they call primary scrape areas. So these aren't necessarily mock scrapes. These are areas back in cover where you, there is a, a saturated area of scrapes. So a, a thick cover area that's kind of an area of transition, though, that a lot of deer staging are passing area. through. Yep, a staging area, exactly, um, where there's numerous scrapes popping up in a small area. Some guys swear by that type of spot being a good place to set up. Um, but again, 
this isn't one of those wide open field type situations where most guys try hunting scrapes. It's a different type of scenario. So, uh, that's, that's, that's mock scrapes for you. We did talk about trail cameras though there. You were talking, uh, Spencer about how much, well, we all kind of talked about it. Um, but our next, we've got another question about trail cameras that I think would be a good one to, to jump over to. It's from Ben N. Ben, uh, he asks, I'm curious about what kind of settings you recommend using for trail cameras. I've got five out and I usually have a minute delay, but I've actually missed a few bucks. So I was thinking about going down to 30 seconds or less. Curious about what your thoughts are on that. And he does have one more question related to trail cameras, but let's tackle that first one. Time recommendations, delay for trail cameras. Uh, Spencer, what's your trail camera, your typical setup? So almost all of mine are uh, like a three shot burst for 15 seconds. And I don't see any reason to go up to 30 seconds or a minute unless you're not confident that like your battery life is going to make it or that you're worried your uh, memory card will fill up. Um, if you don't think those two things are an issue, then I don't think there's a good reason to, you know, not knock it down to 10 or 15 second delays. Hmm. Interesting. All right. What, uh, and then so you do, you do a, th- a three picture burst you said? Yes. Yep. Do you ever do like a plot scanner mode or, you know, the, the time-lapse type mode on any of your cameras? Uh, no, but that's also just because I don't hunt much for like food plots and stuff like that. Okay. What about you, Dan? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably right at that 30 second mark for hunting right now. If I'm over a mineral station or let's say like a field edge where I, I, I know, uh, so really the only scenario that we're talking about here is a doe coming through or a, a line of deer coming through and you're missing the last one. You're missing what happens, whatever time frame from the time that first deer triggers your camera to the, you know, let's say a, the scenario is a doe chasing or a, um, a buck chasing a doe, right? You don't know what buck is chasing that doe through because the doe triggers the camera and maybe there's a, a line of bucks or a buck cruising right behind her. So when it comes to at the actual hunting season, I drop mine down to probably somewhere around 30 seconds. Um, but again, placement of how you're placing your trail camera has a lot to do with with that if you're if all the deer are coming by you broadside you're going to miss shots no matter how fast you have that set because a deer can walk a long ways in even five seconds right it can walk out of the it can walk out of the uh, the scope of your your trail camera so be sure to have that trail camera angled down that trail wherever you think that they're going so you're catching everything at an angle and in a way, a bigger area. Right. That's a good point. You can see what's what you can see what's behind yeah, the doe. That's true. I um you know, I think that the one situation where I do the minute long delay is in the summer on a place yep. where I can run trail cameras like you said, Dan, over bait or mineral. So yeah, I usually do a three picture burst one minute delay because what I get lots of times in a situation like that is you have the same doe and two fawns sit there for an hour hours and they use up all your card, all your battery. Um, or like in Michigan right now you can put a small amount of food or bait out. And so I will use that like right now to try to get inventory of the bucks. So I put out a little bit of corn in front of these trail cameras to hopefully get a picture of Holyfield or whoever, when they come in, I'm not going in there more often than that because I don't want the pressure, but 
in a situation like that, got deer that sit in front of that trail camera for a long time. So right now I've got the long delay and the three shot burst. I'm going to switch that down though on these cell cameras once that's gone. And now, cause now I'm just looking for movement that comes to the food plot or hits the, the, the scrape tree. So then I'll move down to a 30 second delay. And to your point, Spencer, I think if you're, if you've got a trail camera set up, you know, in a transition area or something where deer are going to be passing through and out of it pretty quickly, I agree. A 15 second delay or something like that should be fine to give you a better chance of getting more pictures because you're right. There's not going to be any deer that sit there for forever chewing up all your battery. Um, so I think Ben, I think you can definitely move down to less than a minute delay in a situation as long as it's not on a food, like a you know, pile of corn or mineral or something like that that's going to hold deer for a super long time. Now, his, his next question, his follow-up question, he says, since I've got you, I'll ask one more. <laughs> <laughs> I like this guy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, Ben. He said, uh, and this was on August 30th, he sent this. So this is a very timely response in Mark Kenyon world. <laughs> He's getting a month delay. That's pretty good. Um, he says that he checked his cameras about two and a half weeks ago. So in mid-August, he checked these cameras, and all of his buck sightings were in the morning. He thought that was sort of unusual. Some were located on mineral sites on a food plot, and some were just mineral sites on trails. His question was, what do you think about that, and then should that you know, impact how I'm hunting when the season opens? My thoughts are, you know, whatever you're seeing in mid-August doesn't really matter for your hunting season. You know, if let's say right now he's listening to this now at this point, he's not hunting, you know, until late September or early October, depending on when his season opened. I can't remember where. I don't know if he told me what state he was in. Um, So I wouldn't I wouldn't read too much into that because patterns in mid-August are very different than patterns in late September or early October. So. You need to reassess what those deer are, during the, are doing during the fall. Um, we've had the, the debate many times between me and Dan about the, the efficacy of hunting a morning hunt versus an evening hunt in the early season. Um, that's a debate we can have again maybe at some other point. But, um, but I think I wouldn't read too much into it. Reassess now. Be very careful with trying to, if you want to hunt in the morning, be very, very, very careful about it because it's tough to get in there before bucks do. Make sure you're not spooking deer when you're heading in. Uh, Dan, would you add anything else to that? Well, I don't know where he, um, where he hunts, but uh, be careful where your mineral stations are in relationship to your tree stands. I don't know why that, that just popped into my hand. In Iowa, they can't really even be close. So, or if a trail leads from the, from, let's say a field edge it, to where your uh, mineral station is and leads back to a, a tree stand, you can't, you can't have that in Iowa. So be careful with that. But as far as where the deer are now, or were, will they be there in a month? For me, there is a huge shift and I can only speak for the properties that I hunt right now. This time in September, probably a week ago, there is a huge shift once the the antlers are hard and they start to break away from their bachelor groups. There's a huge shift in where the deer are going. Not so much with the does, which is good because when the rut hits, you're no, you know where the doe groups are and that's where, where you want to at least start. But for, for individual bucks, man, it's hard to tell what is even going to be on my property because – the the antlers the the antlers become hard it's time to establish dominance who get 
who gets what area of the farm that because that's what that's the first thing that happens once the bucks shed their velvet they establish dominance whether that's fighting or whether that is just uh showing aggression and posture the the bucks are are changing based off of a hierarchy you know a hierarchy of who's the most badass yeah they're establishing that hierarchy now for sure and and yeah that that shift is is pretty universal um pretty universal across the country that happens when that when the velvet sheds you get that september shift um how far those deer shift can very oftentimes vary it can vary based on habitat you know some places they need to move much further some places it's it's more of just an individual deer some bucks some bucks do stay. I don't know. Anecdotally, I feel like I, I've not seen what the actual numbers, if there's research that shows this, but anecdotally, I feel like 40%, maybe almost 50% of bucks that I've got on trail camera in the summer will probably disappear in September and move somewhere different. Um, yeah, for it's me, almost, it's even, it might even be more. Yeah. So you're going to get a, you're going to get a big change. And, and that's a good point because it does depend on the habitat you have. Like if you've got a property that's primo summer habitat but you don't have good fall cover or fall food that could also influence how much of a shift you see um so that's that's all that's all great stuff spencer what do you think anything different no i'm uh, ready to move on perfect well then i've got a perfect question for you because we've got a question from kevin b who is rapidly trying to catch up on all of our michigan related podcasts but he can't seem to find one that talks about tips to get a dead whitetail off of public land without the use of motorized vehicles. So he's wondering if we can point him in the right direction of a podcast where we've talked about that, or if we can just answer it. And I think we just answer it. He's wondering if we just drag out a deer off public land or do we quarter them like out West? I know you do some of this kind of stuff, Spencer. What do you do? Uh, typically I'm not hunting anything that's like super huge where I'm, I'm backpacking or anything like that. And so what we do a lot around here is we have those big deer carts um, and Hawk makes a really good one, has four wheels and, and that makes getting your deer out super easy. The problem is it's all the way back at the truck. Um, so you're making an extra trip, but you, you know, it makes getting that deer out a lot easier. Now there can sometimes be problems with that in that, like in South Dakota, we have some pieces of public ground that are called WIA walk-in area. Um, and they are very literal about that meaning. I talked to a game one one time about potentially biking in on a piece of ground uh, to hunt a little bit deeper. And he said, well, technically, uh, walk-in area means foot traffic only. And he, so, he said, is that legal? No. Would I ever write you a ticket? No. And so yeah. I, I think the same thing kind of goes with that. If those wheeled carts are allowed in your area um, and you're not hunting anything that's like super dramatic topography, uh, those are a really good option for getting a deer out. Have you used that hawk one yet? Because I just saw like a video of it and it looked pretty cool, um, but I haven't used it. I have not used that one yet. Um, I've used other ones in the past, like uh, Cabela's makes one and, and stuff, and uh, they just work really nice as long as you're not like rolling over dead timber all the time or you know trying to get out of like a deep drainage. Yeah, yeah. I haven't used one of the carts, um, but what I have used, uh, growing up, we hunted, so uh, so I've talked in the past about this little piece of property that my grandpa bought 30-some years ago that I grew up learning to deer hunt on, and that little piece of private that my family owned owns um, is adjacent to a bunch of public land. So I grew up, actually, 
I never really talk about this, but really most of the hunting I did there actually wasn't even on our private land. Most of it was on the public land all around there. I just never really thought anything about it. I just thought this was just where we hunted. I never really processed the fact that this was something special. This is public land and all that um, that was available to us for free. But um, so we used to go way deep into this public stuff, and we just used to take whenever someone shot a buck back there, we just had an old plastic like toboggan, like sled. And you would just take that sled in there, and then that would make things a little bit easier getting out. Because this was like swampy stuff, so it's pretty slick, wet ground, grass. And you could slide you know, a deer on that sled a lot easier than if you were dragging him. Um, so that worked well for us back then. And now today, what I bought last year when I went out to Montana, because I knew I could potentially have a really long haul to get a buck out, I bought this thing that's called the deer sl- I was just going to buy a sled. I was going to do the old sled trick. So I just looked for sled or something like that online and then I ended up somehow getting suggested something called the deer slayer like the deer slayer I think is what it was called and it was basically a sled specifically made for this situation and really when I say a sled it's not really a sled it's it's like a I talked about this maybe last year Dan you might remember I referred to it as like a deer burrito it is um, yeah. it's basically a rolled up piece of thick plastic sheeting really thick plastic sheeting that has grommels on the, like, imagine like a hot dog bun kind of like, so we're talking long ways, hot dog bun. There's grommels along the long side so that you can lay a deer lengthwise in the burrito. Then you fold the burrito up around it and then you tie, you know, paracord through those grommets to tighten them in there. And then there's a big piece of cord on the front that you can drag that deer out with. Um, and that worked pretty darn good. It's lightweight to walk in there with. It gives you, you know, deals with that friction so it's a lot easier to slide them through that helped out the one thing that sucked about it was the handle it was just a piece of rope and that really dug into your hands so in a perfect world i would i meant to fix this this year i didn't do it but i would have liked to put like a water ski handle on it or something so you've got a nice comfortable handle to pull with while you're hauling the deer out with but um but that's what i'm using i haven't had to quarter a whitetail up um yet i haven't done a trip that far in but like we talked about earlier, that would be pretty cool. So at some point that might be the case. But I think if you've got like less than a couple mile haul out, I think something like the deer burrito or game cart's a good way to go. So um They have those it's like a it's almost like a harness that you wear and then it has a couple carabiners on the back mm-hmm. and then you wrap it around a deer's head or his antlers and it's almost like you're pulling it. Yep. Like a like a horse sleigh. Have you tried one of those? No, we, um, my buddy, we, we know the man by the name of Furter. <laughs> my, oh boy. My buddy Furter bought one of those. And so I, I killed a buck a few years ago on our Ohio property and he brought that and said, so, Oh, let's try this out. And it just, at least the one we use, it just wasn't well made. I think it was really flimsy. And so like the straps just dug into you like crazy into your shoulders and the line yeah. that goes back to the deer wasn't you know at a good length so either it was too close to you so the antlers are jabbing in the back of your legs or so long that just the way the weight pulled on you it was super uncomfortable so we're dragging across this field and then like halfway across the property i all of a sudden and this is how much of an idiot we are i all of a sudden realized you know we could just talk to the landowner and probably drive our trucks out here because there's a cut bean field there's nothing out there i'm like why the heck aren't we just driving our truck out to get it <laughs> so we we call the landowner he's like oh yeah just drive right on back so lesson learned there different obviously on I, public land i'm i'm what you would call a badass oh so yeah so i i typically just throw the deer ungutted 
<laughs> over my shoulders and then just walk out of the timber normally. Yeah, I, I can totally see that being what you would do. That's that seems yeah. like a smart move for sure. <laughs> of course, I would take selfies the entire time to prove that as well. Instagram, man, gotta gotta make that Instagram. I'd cut, cut the I'd cut the sleeves off of my shirt before I did that. Stand on top of the mountain, make yep. the picture happen. All right, next okay. question. Next question <laughs> is from. Uh, next question. <laughs> the heck does this guy say this guy's from josh this is josh d not to be confused with josh furter um josh furter josh d says that his buddy and him are making their first trip to kansas this year they're going to be up there november 5th through 11th they're super excited about it but they are very uneducated on hunting midwest style because they are from alabama they're hunting hardwood draws as he calls them and pine ridges and he's wondering about a few things. Number one, what types of cold weather gear should he have in his arsenal for a November 5th through 11th hunt in Kansas? Number two, what kinds of terrain features should he be targeting in Kansas at that time of year? And then number three, we got a whole lot going here. Number three, he says that there's going to be a full moon on November 4th. So he's wondering how that's going to affect his hunting. Should he be focusing just on mornings? Um, or does that not mean the mornings are going to be so good? He also has some questions about using decoys. We already covered that, so we won't go any more on the, on the decoy question. So I guess number one, cold weather gear for out there. Number two, terrain <laughs> features. Number three, let's talk about the timing of the rut and if the moon impacts it at all. All right? That's what we're going with here, guys. <laughs> while, while I got you. Yeah, while I got you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, anyone want to tackle the cold weather gear? Uh, any, any thoughts there? I think you're the expert, aren't you, Mark? Well, I can offer a few thoughts. Um, this is this is the where you enter a Sitka commercial, <laughs> right? I think all three of us are, are rocking the Sitka gear, so we have some experience there. And and yes, they are our sponsor, but I really do think they've got some incredible stuff. But what, we'll just keep it general. Whatever kind of clothing brand you would like to use, we use Sitka and we love it. But whatever you're going to use, number one, make sure you have a good synthetic or wool base layer. Do not wear a cotton base layer because that's you're going to sweat no matter what. When you're walking in there in the morning or in the evening, you're probably going to get sweaty. If you get sweaty, that means you're getting wet. And if you're getting wet, you're not able to stay warm. So wear a base layer. It's going to wick away that moisture. That's number one. Number two, I would recommend some kind of easily packable insulation layer. So when you're walking in in the morning or the evening, you want to be wearing as little as you possibly can so that you reduce how much you sweat. So you want to pack in whatever your warm layer is. So that could be like a, a some type of puffy vest or puffy jacket or whatever it might be. Try to have something that you can put in your backpack or throw over your shoulder, and it's not like this huge thing you got to carry around with you. Make sure it's something that's going to be nice and insulated. So, so for me, like a cold weather rut hunt, that is going to be for me like a fanatic vest or a fanatic jacket um, by Sitka. And then finally, I would recommend some type of wind stopping outer layer so something that's going to cut the wind because i think a lot of what we're getting when it comes to being cold and uncomfortable out there especially in kansas kansas is notoriously windy so you're definitely going to want to have something that's going to cut the wind um so again being a sick guy we have layers that have gore wind stopper it's a specific um fabric uh layer in there that stops wind it pretty much completely stops the wind it, it's it's terrific so something like a fanatic jacket or the Stratus jacket, something like that stops that wind. So whatever brand it might be for you, try to have a piece like that. Those would be the three things I would mention 
Um, there's a lot more to keep in mind, but I'll let you guys offer a few thoughts too. Well, unlike you, Mark, I'll be a company man and say that <laughs> I love Sitka's incinerator hand muff. Um, yeah. Like for cold weather stuff, I, I absolutely love it for archery specifically because I don't have to wear big bulky gloves then. Um, I can keep my hands in there. And it also has like a nice pocket that I inevitably fill up with stuff I don't need. Uh, like I know I'll be hunting this November and find like a turkey call in there or something. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, for cold weather hunts, like I, I think that's a must have is, is some kind of, you know, hand warming system like that. I agree. I've I've really liked I I don't have the muff, but Furter has got one of those muffs and he loves that. And um and I wear the fanatic jacket or the fanatic vest and so both of those have that hand warmer pocket, like the kangaroo pocket there in your belly. And mm-hmm. I've really come to like that. So Dan, any other cold weather suggestions? Dude, I am a huge fan of the Kelvin Light vest. Yeah. Right? That it's it's the I have the ultralight and I know they make a a regular one and they make a hoodie and they make a, a jacket, but I, I just have the vest and that is something that almost instantly, you know, you walk into the timber, you got your wool or synthetic base layer on, uh, you're sweating that wool and, or the synthetic dries you up fairly quick. You're in your stand. Um, I'll throw on my fanatic hoodie. And then over top of that, I will throw on my, uh, my ultralight, uh, vest and that's I think it's down in there and then um, and then I put my uh, a jacket over top of that and uh, you're good to go I mean it, I just that pe that piece particular for me just works so well and keeps me warm um, for sure. other than that a good old-fashioned stocking cap yeah make sure you got a good hat make sure you got good gloves bring some hand warmers um, and Thermos. Uh, thermos full of coffee yeah that might make you poop but oh yeah that's why i don't drink coffee during uh hunting season although although i know that dan you're known to just lean over the side of the stand even when you have a friend in the tree with you and just drop a deuce so (laughs) yep shout out shout out ryan eiberg yeah Uh, (laughs) he had to watch that he's been no for like a handful of years it it wasn't a one-time deal it was like (laughs) Like once a week. <laughs> oh man, that's one of my favorite. I, there's a, there's a few like Dan Johnson isms or like experiences that never cease to like amaze me. Like I love the pooping story. I love the time then you brought the tent that didn't have waterproofness and had to sleep in mine. Um, yep. There's a handful of others I can't think of right now, but like whenever it comes up, it's always worth resharing because it just makes me smile. It just makes me smile. Yeah. So I'm what you might call a dipshit. Yeah, you might you might call that. It's true. <laughs> So, so this guy had a couple other questions though that we should get to. Uh, he said, what terrain features should I be targeting in Kansas? I will say I've never hunted Kansas, but the one thing I consistently hear about Kansas is that what's supposed to be super cool about hunting out there is that in a lot of areas, there's relatively minimal cover. There's not a lot of cover. It's a lot of open CRP or crop fields or different things like that. Because of that, all the cover, the only available cover, is along little creeks and drainages. So you've got big wide open fields, rolling hills, and then you've got these drainages that have the only timber in the area. So you've got these little fingers of of timber running through these big areas. And what I understand, what I hear, is that that funnels deer in a really, really predictable, easy-to-figure-out way. So so many guys I know go out there and you you, you know during the rut that they're going to be running those drainages because that's the only cover available. And so it's pretty simple to know where to set up. You've got pinch points everywhere. Um, 
So that would be, again, this is just from hearsay. This is what I hear, but that's something I hear that's just like a dynamite way to get on them during the rut. You guys have any thoughts? Well, I'll tell you, um, we had a, a podcast with Andy May. Remember, the he's a he's a big butt killer. Yep. And my uncle, who also lives in Kansas, this is what he's told me. Now, because there's not a lot of trees, that doesn't mean deer are following these fence lines and these wherever there is a, a quote unquote field edge where there's these fingers of timber or these river bottoms. They're using low, the lowest possible point, let's say in a flat field to cross mm-hmm. as well. So wherever that low spot meets the timber, uh, that might be a good place to set up. Uh, because they'll come in and out of that timber or from across the field that you might not be able to see from a road or from, um, let's say, on the opposite side of it along the along the timber edge. You're going to be able to, you know, you find this low spot where they're coming in and out of, set up there. And another and one way to find that is depending on where you're actually hunting. If you're hunting like a big CRP, um, it might be harder if you're hunting a crop field or a cattle pasture, but if it's, let's let's say like a CRP field, zoom in as close as you can on the CRP fields from like Google maps or some other map application, digital map application. And you will be able to see the trails that these deer are leaving. And, um, that would be a good place to start. It's a great point. I've, I've done that myself. I did that last week while I was in Montana. I was trying to, you know, hunt in new places and trying to figure out where might be a good spot to start. And when you've got those grassy type of areas or marshy type of areas where you can see those trails, even from the maps way up in satellite view. So great point. Uh, Mr. Newharth. I, I know he addresses like the full moon and, and that stuff that time of year, but I guess I wouldn't let that affect his plans too much. Um, I, I think hunting in that range of time, you could just be confident that the deer are going to be moving. Um, and like I recently did an article for real for Realtree um, and talked to like 10 whitetail personalities and very well respected about what specifically is their favorite day of the rut. And I had seven of the 10 people pick November 5 through November 10, a date in there. Um, so I, I guess I'm just making a point that I wouldn't worry too much about the full moon uh, because that's as good as it gets uh, during that time frame. So don't yeah. let that, you know, change your mind about where you're going to hunt. Yeah. yeah. Especially the, the only other option. I mean, even if we were to say, Hey man, you know, don't hunt that full moon or whatever. What's he going to do when he's coming from Alabama to Kansas, not hunt. Yeah, that's man. not an option. That's yeah. not an option. If you're if you're doing a trip like that, well, any, at least as far as I'm concerned, November one through fifteen, you should be in the tree the entire day if you possibly can, or as much as you possibly can. Whatever it is, like there's not a bad time. Um, now, since he brings up the full moon and the rut, I thought it might be worth just giving like the the one hundred and one on what does impact the timing of the rut. Um, so I'll give my two cents on it. You guys can tell me if you agree or disagree. Um, but if you're not familiar, this is something we've talked about a lot. So if you're a long-time, long-time listener, first-time caller, this might not be news to you. But um, right, the, the, the timing of the rut, when peak breeding occurs, research has shown the biologists continue to contend that it is influenced and only impacted by photo period. Photo period is the amount of daylight in a 24-hour period, and that changes throughout the year at a consistent rate. 
So as photo period changes, as daylight reduces, you know, declines throughout the year, testosterone levels increase and estrogen levels in does increase in correlation to that changing photo period. And so this is a consistent thing across the vast majority of the whitetail range in North America that results in a relatively consistent peak breeding date year in, year out. Research has shown that biologists have gone in and they do fetal measurement studies where they go and they check roadkill does, they take the fetuses out of those killed does, or they measure does, you know, whatever it might be, when they can get their hands on a fetus, they can measure that fetus and there's a way that they can effectively backdate when that deer was conceived. So they can see when that date of conception was. So then you can graph all these conception dates out and year in and year out, over and over and over again, it's relatively consistent per area. you got a bell curve. So for most places, it's somewhere in that mid-November time frame that your peak breeding date occurs. In Michigan, I think it's somewhere around like the 15th, give or take. And then it's going to be slightly less as you go down on either side. So then a decent number of deer bred on the 14th or the 16th. And then a few less on the 13th or the 17th. And then a few less on the 12th and the 18th, if you can envision that, that you know, upside down you. So what that means is that there's a lot of people that talk about how the timing of the full moon supposedly can influence the rut. There's a lot of people who say like a full moon or whatever might influence the timing of the rut. Most of the science says that it does not impact the timing of breeding. What it might influence, what I what I personally have not decided whether or not it does or not, but a lot of people think it does, is that it might impact how much daylight rutting activity we see. So it's not changing when they're actually breeding, but maybe it has a little bit of influence on how much actual daylight activity we're seeing related to that. So, you know, we've talked about different moon theories, you know, whether it be moon rising early in the evening or setting late in the morning, or some people talk about like Mark Drury is a big believer and that, that that full moon does illuminate a certain portion of the rut. So he is a big believer, if I remember correctly, that the full moon, the three or four days leading up to the full moon, you're going to have better afternoon hunts. And the three or four days after the full moon, you're going to have better morning hunts. There's a lot of theories around in and around that kind of thing. Um, or that you might get a little bit earlier movement in the afternoon if you've got a moon that's starting to rise during that last hour of daylight, stuff like that. Um, but again, to your point, Dan, or Spencer, whoever said this, I think um, when it's during this time period, during this you know, first and second week of November or the last week of October, even the last few days of October, right? Rutting behavior is happening in most of the country. Be in the tree. If you can be in the tree, be in the tree. Um, now, it's it's a crapshoot in certain parts of the south. It's just for whatever reason, it's really wonky down there, and there's some weird anomalies that I can't even speak to. I can't explain it. There's theories that it's related to um, deer that were um, transported from different parts of the country, some weird genetic things. I can't speak to that. But for most of the country, if you're in the middle of the country, north, and even most places elsewhere, Basically, what I just said there is going to be the case. Um, anything I said there that you guys would disagree with? No. <laughs> All right. I'll, t- I'll take silence as a resounding yes, that I'm correct, or in some way it makes sense. <laughs> I, I mean, I wouldn't even take the, the moon into consideration at all. I mean, just... Remember where a lot of this research is coming from or a lot of whatever people are talking about the moon. These are people who are hunting big food plots, right? So 
it, it it's revolving around food, which means that um, you know they they have a different view of what's really happening as opposed to what I have a feeling this guy is gonna witness. He's probably not hunting large food plots where the the deer herd is conditioned to you know be on this awesome pattern back and forth where hey maybe this moon would affect something i don't think it's going to be enough to where it would it's going to make a difference at all yeah if you're if you're and i'm only speaking for myself in the situations that i have where you know i don't think the moon i don't take the moon into consideration when i'm planning my hunt yeah it's it's one of those things that I that I continue to be on the fence about too. There's man, there's a lot of really good deer hunters who swear by it. Um, okay. I I continue to, to 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 look at it and think about it and and just see. Um, so I'll go on a hunt and I'll I'll just see if does any of this increased activity correlate to one of these moon things that people talk about. Yeah. And I'm just going to slowly continue to accumulate data there and see if I can't make any um, oh conclusions off of that. But but. The research and the science out there that has been done so far has not found any kind of conclusive connection. So that's all there is, as far as I know, when it comes to the moon and the rut. But, man, guys continue to swear by it, and, and people are always intrigued in Elsheimer's theories and some of these other things. I worked on a big outdoor life story this year that's going to be coming out here probably in the next month or two. Um, where we took a look at all these different theories. We took a look at the theories related to the moon. We took a look at theories related to photo period, theories related to how weather, cold fronts might impact it, theories how just understanding like local patterns might influence how you hunt the rut. Um, and it's all super interesting, but I think you, you know, it's interesting and it could be helpful, but in the end, I think it comes right down to it. Be in the tree as much as you can during November, no matter what, and that's going to be your best number one strategy. All right, we are going to take a quick break here for some insight from our friends at Whitetail Properties. And Spencer, we'll take it from here. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Neil Hogger, a land specialist out of Wisconsin. And Neil is going to be telling us about red flags that buyers should be alerted to when looking at a property. Well, the typical answer for that is, you know, the the neighborhood is always important. If you have a poor neighborhood, that's not going to be good. But uh, secondly, I might add in there, you know, the numbers is your, are your goals in line with the number of deer that are there. If you're a trophy hunter or not, are you looking for numbers? You're just looking to have a good time hunting. So those are two important things that you could do your research and basically just find the data. And if the data says, you know, tells the story of what you're looking for, then you would buy it. If not, you wouldn't buy it. But two things that people might not think about that I come across on a fairly regular basis are mineral rights. And perhaps abandoned septics, privies, which are outhouses in northern Wisconsin, uh, abandoned wells. These are uh, hazards or potential hazards that are kind of hidden from the average guy. If you don't uh, look into it, you might have yourself uh, a bill to remove those. So if you don't have a budget to take care of the hazards, then it'd be wise maybe to not buy that property. And those are some things I definitely would look for for reasons not to buy a property. If you'd like to learn more. And to see the properties that Neil currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash hogger. That's H-A-U-G-E-R. Moving on. Jesse A. has a question. He or she, Jesse's one of those names, I'm not sure. Um, 
Could you address your opinions and findings on how using a vehicle to get close to your hunting spot could affect or possibly push deer away from that area? I've got a small property, 20 acres, that is over a half mile from the road, but I do have access by lane to get very close to my property. I share this property with my 67-year-old dad that is not interested in walking too much. Um, okay, so how could a vehicle being driven in close to your hunting spot possibly affect deer? Spencer, any thoughts on that one? Well, I would say under no circumstances is you know it going to help you. It's certainly not going to help you, I guess. The only ways I could see that, you know, you could feel comfortable like driving, driving a vehicle close would be if there's like other farm implements there that you could, you know, hide this thing amongst a combine and, you know, some broken down pickups or something like that. Or if there's like a really low spot um, where, you know, you could park a vehicle and, you know, be 100 yards away and not know what's there. But I guess they're maybe looking for acceptance to, to take a vehicle in and it's probably just not, you know beneficial as far as hunting wise and in, in too many circumstances mm-hmm. dan I don't, I don't think i've heard of you ever doing anything like that but do you have any thoughts well here's my thoughts um depending on what's on this 20 acres how they're hunting it let's say they're hunting a food source and they want to drive in close to the morning they're going to bump deer off the food source which means they're just going to go back to bed earlier probably not beneficial now where i can see it being beneficial is if it is a farm type setting where there's a lot of vehicles traveling around the area you have a four-wheeler or a car drive you directly to your tree stand you get up and it's, and it's, then someone drives that four-wheeler away that is where i can see it working yeah that that's exactly what i was going to say i think if 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 it's in a scenario where deer are used to some kind of vehicle traffic as long as they see it come in and then leave i think that can be a really good situation but you need to be in a situation where someone can drop you off and take you out because if you can do that and these deer are conditioned to that type of thing, you're able to get in and out of your stand without, you know, educating any deer along the way because they just think a vehicle came in and out and you're not leaving your scent all over the place. That all can be great. Um, but not everybody has a scenario like that. Um, for me, we talked about this a lot last year, but I was able to convince my wife to use my four wheeler to drive onto one of these properties I hunt because it was near a field edge. That I couldn't get out without spooking deer on my afternoon hunts after dark. She'd come in with a four-wheeler, drive right up to the tree I was hunting, spook all the deer off, but spooked them with the four-wheeler and not me climbing out of my tree and walking out of there. And I was able to get out and hunt that spot much more often than I think I would have otherwise without having a significantly negative impact on those deer. So I continued to see mature bucks there, even though I was you know, hunting a field edge that in most other situations I would be you know, educating these deer. So I think in that situation, getting a pickup at night is a good way to do it if you know, if the circumstances dictate anything else on that one. Otherwise we got a question here from man. We gotta, we gotta move here kind of quick. We're going long. All right. How about this one? Um, (laughs) Tyler F has got a few questions. Tyler F hunts in Ohio. Sometimes the bugs can get thick in the early season. I'm thinking about using a thermocell while in the stand. My question is, is that a smart idea? Or is it going to spook deer? That's question number one of his questions. So let's do let's do really quick here. Thermocell, yes or no? Spencer? Never used one. Dan? Never, never used one. Mark? Yes. I have used them. I love them. When you're in a super mosquito-y area, they've worked really, really well for me. I've not seen a negative – I've not seen any more negative um, reaction from deer – 
than if they just got my scent some other way. So if a deer gets downwind of you and they are going to smell you one way or another in some form or fashion, they're also going to smell this kind of smoky thing. I have been told that deer don't find it like terribly alarming. Um, I haven't seen them turn inside out because of it. So with, with like me practicing my entire scent control regiment and using Ozonics machine in the tree with me and using some nose jammer, if a deer gets downwind of me, sometimes they still wind me or sometimes they smell something. They kind of put their nose in the air and they're like, I don't know what that is. And then they either just continue on their way or maybe they turn and go back the way they came, but they don't turn inside out. While using a thermocell added into that equation, me personally, I've just seen a similar type of reaction. Sometimes you're going to get winded or sometimes like, eh, what's this? Eh, uh, whatever. I'll keep going. But they, no doubt about it, they definitely take care of the mosquitoes. So if you're in a super mosquito area, they help. Tyler, second question. <laughs> Which would you hunt first in the early season? Option A, the edge of a cornfield. Option B, a bottom with hay and alfalfa. Or option C, in the timber where a lot of acorns are. Dan, what do you think? Man, that's just great. I don't, I don't need I, it's so vague. Right. It's kind of hard to answer. But, we got we got we got to like assuming all things being equal, right, some very right. basic things if yeah. What do you got? I mean, if if the alfalfa is fresh and green and not dried out, then, you know, that might be a good option. But acorns, man, right now the deer are hitting acorns. I've been on drives the last couple nights and um, the deer in the fields have dropped drastically because of the acorn drop. So mm-hmm. I guess find, find some acorns. Yep. I was going to say, I think, I think you make a good point, which is you need to identify what the deer are finding most palatable at that moment. So in some form or fashion, you need to, whether it's scouting from a distance or just knowing what's going on, or I know some people do a little bit of speed scouting just before the season, like on a rainy, windy day, to do a quick walk on the edge of something to determine what the food source of choice is right now. Um, that's what I'd say. But I think probably in the early season, all other things being equal, more often than not, I think uh, if it's a lush alfalfa field right now, that's going to be pretty attractive. And if acorns are on the ground, that's going to be pretty attractive. I think those two things in the early season typically would be more attractive than the edge of a cornfield. But Again, there's so many other variables. Maybe the edge of a cornfield that he can hunt is a transition zone to an alfalfa field, and it's in cover, and that's where this big buck's walking through every day headed to feed on the acorns or whatever. You just don't know. Um, but those are a few thoughts at a high level. Spencer, anything else you would uh, chip in there? Yeah, I guess if he means like the actual edge of a cornfield, that seems like it'd be a difficult hunt early season just for the you know practicality of having a shooting lane into there um so but i would agree with you guys that the alfalfa and, and acorns sound like the best option yeah again super super general there but uh, a few thoughts um okay i think we got time for two more questions here jonathan f just got a deer call this year and he's excited to use it in fact my family laughs at me because i walked around the house grunting snort wheezing and making calls if I, I even take it with me when I travel in the car and practice calling in the car. So this guy is stoked about his grunt tube, which is, which is cool. His question is, is it a good idea to call during, oh geez, what's he trying to say here? He says, is he trying to call during fun deer season slash post rut? Um, but I don't think that's what he means. Then he says, I've read several mixed information, several bits of mixed information via forums 
Okay, let's let's do this. I think he's asking, is it a good idea to call in the early season or late season? So, of course, it's a good idea, or it's understandable to use a grunt tube during the rut. I think most people talk about using grunt tubes during the pre-rut or rut phases. Typically, that's when it can be most effective. I think most people would agree with that. So let's just say, yes, a grunt tube is a decent idea during the rut phases. Um, but the question being, what about early season or late season? Um, and I guess that's my take on it. Would you guys disagree with my thoughts that sometimes it's most likely going to be a good idea, possibly in the middle of the, those rut phases, Dan, Spencer? And then number two, I, later or late, earlier or late? I think when he said fun deer season, I think he means gun deer season. So. Oh, uh, I, I don't think he's asking about early in the year, but maybe he means fun early deer season. Okay. Well, then I guess, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to take it that way then? Gun season and or post rut? Um, I, I don't know. I, I guess it sounds like he's really into his grunt tube. And like that's kind of one of those things with age. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that's something with age. I think when you're like a teenager that like when you go hunting, like you're going to hunt every chance you get in the morning, early season. When you hit the rut, you're going to be calling all the time. Um I, I guess post rut, if you feel like you have nothing to lose, um, you know, do some calls and, and stuff like that. But I just I wouldn't overdo it because it sounds like he's uh, pretty anxious to to use his grunt tube. <laughs> yeah, and and I think um, Dan, you and I have have talked about some of our high level thoughts on using grunts a lot, and I'll just reiterate: during the rut phases, I it is a tool that's in my repertoire something I will use when the situation dictates. For me, that means if I've got a buck in the distance that I need to see if I can sway his opinion to come towards me, to change his direction to come towards me, I will try a grunt or two. Um, but I think the most important thing is, number one, I, I don't like to do blind, me personally, I don't like to blind grunt or blind call. So I'm not just willy-nilly grunting all the time to bring something in. I used to do that when I was younger too. Same deal, I was super into my grunt tube and thought this would be like the key to all my success. I think many times you're just more likely to spook something or if you do attract something, but you don't know it, you might spook that deer because you're still looking around and you don't realize this buck's coming in. So I personally only use a grunt tube when I can see a deer and I need to change his direction to come towards me. I'll try a contact grunt of some type. If he doesn't hear that time, I'll try it again. If you definitely see that buck hear you, like he stops, looks at you, doesn't care and then keeps going. I'm not going to really try a whole lot more. I might try one snort wheeze, and if that doesn't work, then I personally don't like to keep grunting and making noise because you're probably just going to spook that deer. Um, the one thing, the one other thing I'll add is that if that deer hears me and then positively reacts, so he starts walking my way, don't start calling to him anymore. I would stop. Like at that point, don't ruin a good thing. Let that deer come in at his own pace. Do not keep making noise. You can only make things worse at that point. In my opinion, for early season, I am very conservative when it comes to calls and grunting in the early season. Um, I might just do a light contact grunt just to, if if it's a snare where there's a great buck out there and he's not coming my way. Maybe there's a small chance I can get him to be curious and just be wondering, oh, what was that deer over there? So I might just give the lightest, well, blah, but that's it. Like I'm not going to do anything more than that. Um, and that would be my same type of thoughts in the late season. I'm very, very minimal when it comes to calling outside of the rut. Dan, anything else you did? Yeah, man, just, I don't know. It, calling is almost like an art, right? You got to be able to judge the, if you're calling at an animal, blind calling, don't do it. Uh, if you're calling at an animal, uh, you got to be able to 
read its body language. You got to be able to say, okay, is this buck in an aggressive uh, state where he might come investigate or is he, you know, really relaxed, walking away, not caring anything. And it depends on what time of the year it is, right? I mean, if it's in the rut, yeah, you might get a response, but if it's early season and I've, and I've done this several times before where I've seen a a deer that I want to get a closer look at come out, um, you know, come down a different Ridge or, and I grunt and they, it's like they completely ignore it. So I don't know. It's better to call less than to call more. Yeah. I know some guys that like to call even to bucks that they don't want to shoot. Like they'll call to every year and a half old buck or young buck just cause it's fun to see a thing and bring them in. And I would not recommend that. Cause I feel like every time you do that, you could potentially educate a deer that a grunt that they hear in the woods is a negative thing. You know, if you, if you grunt in a deer because you just want to have fun with it and then it wins you or it sees you all of a sudden now has a very negative association with that sound you made. So in two years from now, when he's a big mature buck and you try grunting to him again, he might turn inside out and get to the next County because he can still, he still has that connection, that negative association. Um, so I, to your point, Dan, I would not call any more than I have to. And I wouldn't do it unless it's a scenario that I'm, you know, if it's worth taking that risk because Making a grunt call is a risk. You can risk spooking it simply from it hearing you and not liking it. Or number two, lots of times when you call to a deer, if it hears it and if it's interested in it, many times it's going to try to circle downwind of you. And so if you're if you're in a position where it can easily get downwind of you, you could have mucked things up because now he's actively trying to catch your scent. Um, and if you don't have a the right setup or the right scent control or whatever it might be, now you're in trouble too. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Anything else on calls? If not, we will move on to our final question of the night. Final question is from Jason D. That's D as in Dan Johnson. And Jason says, I recently tore my rotator cuff and I'm having surgery in two weeks. I'm going to miss my first bow season in many years. So first off, man, I'm sorry, Jason. That is a bummer. Um... So he's going to miss bow season. So he's wondering, to pass the time, could you send me some suggestions for reading material? I've already read A Hunter's Heart, so he's he thanks me for that suggestion. Um, so, man, I got a lot of different books. I'm a book nerd. Um, Spencer, I don't know. Are you much of a reader? Do you have any book recommendations? I am. Uh, I think typically outdoor writing falls in like two categories. There's like the dry stuff and then be like if dan johnson wrote you know 10 ways to kill an iowa buck and like <laughs> the the poetic stuff then be like you know mark kenyon's quest to kill holyfield mm-hmm. and there's like little in the way of comedy and who does that best is bill heavey i just i love his stuff and it's yeah really entertaining and like such a nice break from everything else that's you know in the outdoor world as far as writing goes it's a great point bill has so got would, a couple good books out there yeah, I'd pick up any of his books um, just as a nice break from from you know whatever else you might be reading right now. I think uh, I think his books are titled "If That Wasn't Jerky, What Did I Just Eat?" <laughs> and then yeah. uh, and then the other ones, uh, "You're Not Lost If You Can Still See the Truck." I think is the other one. I agree. Very funny stuff. Anything else, or was that, was that uh, your suggestion? Uh, I, I guess that would be my suggestion. All right, I like it, Dan. Anything? Well, speaking of humor. 
uh, and I'm, I'm not one to toot my own horn, but and I and I doubt many people get the uh, the magazine Iowa Sportsman, but I wrote a article comparing digital scouting for deer like watching pornography. Oh, uh, <laughs> no, I'm serious because it's like, all right, the lights are down low. You got to, you know, get away from the family, you know, shut the blinds, you know, cause you know, the wife sees you doing that and she's like, you're doing that again. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very so, interesting comparison, Dan. I like it. <laughs> right. 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 So, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I can barely read. Much, so I don't. <laughs> I know that's all right. I wasn't. Gonna... I don't have. I don't have the time for it. I hear you. Although you did like start to read a book when we were elk hunting that I've I've been meaning to send to you so you could finish it because it's a really good book. Um, we talked about it once, like two years ago. We did a podcast where we talked about books too. Um, and that book that you started reading that you found interesting was called The Last Stand, and it's about George Bird Grinnell and um, what he did as he uh, he founded Field and Stream was the first. I believe he found, or maybe he was the first editor. I can, now I'm going to get this wrong. But George Bird Grinnell was a very influential sportsman with what he was able to write in Field and Stream. And then he also was one of the guys that helped start the Boone and Crockett Club. He worked with Teddy Roosevelt to really start instituting game laws. Um, started, he actually was able to help make sure that game wasn't being hunted and wantonly wasted in Yellowstone National Park in the early years. Um, so the last stand talks about his experiences with that and everything he did to help save the Buffalo and Yellowstone and across the country and what he did with field and stream and the Boone and Crockett club. Really interesting book. Highly recommend that one. Um, now I'm going to go through a handful of different books that I also like and I've talked about in the past. Um, anything by my friend, Steve Ranella. I just spent a week with him out hunting caribou and the dude is a terrific writer. They're some of my favorite books. So American Buffalo, or the hot guide to, or shoot, what is it? The the scavenger's guide to hot cuisine, and then meat eater. Three awesome books. Highly recommend those. Another book kind of related to the history of conservation in America and wildlife and public lands is called The Big Burn by Timothy Egan. That is the story of Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot and what they've done to help create the national forest system and all those public lands we have across the country, and then how this huge wildfire that came through in 1906, I think, um, how the, the, the events surrounding that fire influenced what they were trying to do with the National Forest Service and the, the, the people who were attacking the National Forest and trying to get them get rid of them, the guys who didn't want public land. So really interesting story there. Highly recommend that one. Um, We've talked about this one as well, The Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. That should just kind of be like required reading for anyone who's a hunter or conservationist, especially the last section where it dives into his conservation ethic, the land ethic. Really good to read that and chew on that. Think about that one. Um, American Serengeti by Dan Flores or Flores. I'm not sure how you properly pronounce that. But this, again, is about the history of... Um, of wildlife in North America, what we had back in like the Pleistocene era. So like the ice age type animals that were hanging around in the great plains of North America. And then what was here 200 years ago when, you know, Lewis and Clark and those guys were first exploring it. And then how we then unfortunately contributed to the, the decline of a lot of those animals. And then now we brought a lot of those species back. So it dives into kind of the natural history of, of elk and grizzlies and wolves and pronghorn and, um, whole bunch of different animals. Really, really interesting. Um, 
as far as like deer hunting, if you're interested in reading something that's going to help you become a better deer hunter, some of my very favorite books are those written by the Eberharts. John Eberhart was on the podcast a couple weeks ago and his son, Chris Eberhart. Those are like some of the most influential books on how I hunt now that I read like a decade ago. So precision bow hunting, um, bow hunting, whitetails, the Eberhart way, uh, whitetail access. Those are all really good ones. Um, the books by Jeff Sturgis. He's another past podcast guest. His Whitetails by Design. He's got three books in that series. Those are really good. Steve Bartilla's books. I especially like Big Buck Secrets. Those ones are recommended. Um, I'm going to throw out two more books here. <laughs> a Thousand Deer by Rick Bass. Rick Bass is one of those little more poetic writers, a little bit deeper. Um, but he had a book. It's called A Thousand Deer that speaks to his experiences deer hunting in uh, the hill country of Texas where he grew up or where he grew up hunting, and then also in Montana, where he lives now. Really, really interesting essays and stories he writes there. I like that. And then totally off the wall, but a super cool one if you are into wilderness and kind of the healing aspects of of nature and wilderness and uh, animals would be a book called Grizzly Years by Doug Peacock. And Doug was a Vietnam vet. And he came back from the war and was, was pretty messed up coming out of that. And he finally found his kind of way to recenter by going out into the wilderness of Montana and Wyoming and just living out there with the grizzlies. And he did, he would just spend hours and hours and days and days and months observing bears, learning about bears, spending time out there. So this book kind of shares his experiences out there in the wilderness and kind of how these things helped him. And uh, very interesting book interesting insight too into grizz and i'm a big fan of grizz they are super interesting animals so those are a handful of books you can take a look at that are interesting from a hunting or conservation standpoint or just general uh being interested in the outdoors another good one i could i could talk about this for too long um it's called the wild ones and we talked about this with donnie vincent like last year but the wild ones is an interesting book that takes a look at kind of where we are today with wildlife and species going extinct and what we as humans can do or what should we do or what can we do or what should we not do or what is our what is our relationship now with wildlife um, in this world now where we have made such a huge handprint on this uh, on this earth and everything on it so that is my long-winded set of book recommendations. I've got a blog post on wiredhunt.com that goes through a whole bunch more, too. You can check that out by looking up the ultimate recommended reading list for hunters. Um, and and that's all I got. And I think Dan had to drop off because of God knows what, probably something with kids. <laughs> so, Spencer, anything else you want to add, or should we just wrap this this sucker up? Uh, we better wrap it up. This has been exhausting. Two hours. Man. <laughs> yeah. I kept you for a long time. This is definitely this is this is four rut radio episodes right here. So um, exactly. <laughs> I didn't right. want to say it, but you said it. Before, I did. So. Well, thanks for joining us for this one, Spencer. And um, I'm excited to see what we've got going on with the rut radio episodes. And like we said earlier, make sure you listen to those. You'll see the first one in your podcast feed now, and um, look for one. You know, a week from now. And that's it for us today, guys. Hopefully you enjoyed this one. It was a long one, but hopefully we covered enough. Some some may be valuable, some less valuable. But before we go, I want to give a big thank you to our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And a couple more things. 
If you haven't yet left a rating or review for the podcast on iTunes, that's a huge, huge, huge help. So we'd love it if you could do that. And um, I think that's going to be it for us today. So, of course, thank you all for listening. I appreciate it so much. If you're hunting, hope it's going well for you. Good luck out there. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.